0: World Rare Disease Day, held on the last day of February each year, is an annual observance to raise awareness for the 400 million people affected by rare disease globally. World Rare Disease Day 2021 falls on February 28th this year. Visit globalgenes.org forward slash world rare hyphen disease hyphen day for more information on how you can help elevate the cause and shine a light on rare disease patients and caregivers around the world. I'm Daniel Levine, and this is RareCast. Data is critical to rare disease innovation, but it does little to help advance progress if it's not widely accessible to researchers. RareX is a nonprofit working to bust data silos through a federated data sharing platform and empower rare disease patient communities to more easily gather, structure, and securely share critical data through a common platform. We spoke to Nicole Boyce co-founder and executive director of RareX, about the problem RareX is seeking to address, the technology and expertise the organization has been able to bring together, and why data sharing is essential to accelerating the diagnosis of rare diseases and development of new therapies to treat them. Nicole, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. Just as a disclosure before we begin, Nicole is a a longtime friend, colleague, employer, and I do work with RareX. But Nicole, we're going to talk about data sharing, the critical role it can play in advancing an understanding of rare diseases and development of new therapies, and how RareX is seeking to enable data sharing by giving patients control over their own data. Perhaps we can start with the problems you're trying to address. One of those has to do with the siloing of data. The fact that many of the drug companies and academic centers that have data researchers need often don't share it. Why is that?
1: Well, first, I mean, Danny, it's because it's the way that we've done business for decades, and um, we have you know an emergence of new technologies new philosophies, um, and with that new challenges, especially in rare disease, that we actually have an opportunity uh, to kind of troubleshoot and tackle. So when we began, you know, uh, thinking about rarex and the emergence of the org and some of the challenges that we're trying to support, we kind of looked at three buckets. One of those is what you described. It's about siloed data. And in the world of rare disease, what would be extraordinary, it's what Chris Austin from FDA talks about, and Janet Woodcock is, you know, and other researchers is, what if we could just create this open, vibrant ecosystem um, of data sharing, of data for rare disease? What would that help accelerate or help identify? Um, So the dream is, how could we silo break data to really transform rare disease research. Um, The second challenge that we've talked a lot about in rare disease is really around um, the, the type of data that has been collected. I think in the dream world, I think industry and others would have always loved to Put the power of the data in the patient's hands, and in rare disease, it's so critical. And patients are told out the gate, okay, the most important thing that you can do to attract people to your disease, you know, to help um, create better disease understanding, would be to um, create data. And then the person saying that drops the mic and walks away, and the patients are standing there going, okay, you know, how do I do that? So they go and they do that. They go to Facebook, they start collecting data. They go and, and build spreadsheets on their home computers to start collecting data. They don't know what type of data they're supposed to really be collecting. So they're spending a lot of time and effort there. They also don't understand or might not have the ability to actually create um, you know, the important governance around the data that's really important. Uh, they might not have consented um, those participating in, 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 in any way. And last but not least, um, they might be collecting data that's unusable because it's not structured in a way that can be used by researchers. They're not asking the right questions. So there hasn't really been guidance or an opportunity to truly support patients in data collection. and therefore by default, industry and others have had to come forward and, and start doing it for them. So that's the second challenge. The last is that data doesn't exist. You know now there's 9500 rare diseases and more coming on the scene. And the reality is that some of the, the more well-known diseases, those that might have the opportunity to have more people, more time, um, more money, um, you know, better, are better resourced, have um, the skill sets at the organizations that they need to collect data, they could be well on their way. But what about the long tail of rare disease? There's not a lot out there that can support those patients. That can provide access to technologies, um, remove barriers to, to uh, them to be able to collect this type of data. So those are kind of the three challenges that we see um, it, that, that are prevalent, you know, in rare disease, and that if we could tackle those um, and leveraging existing technology, reimagining consent and data governance and data sharing and create a way to allow patients, patient data owners to share the right data at the right time, this could be transformative. And so that's kind of the backbone of everything that we're doing at Rx.
0: Patient organizations have certainly come to understand the importance of collecting and sharing data. Often they're ill-equipped though to do so. What are the challenges patient organizations face?
1: I'm going to answer this question in uh, with two different populations. So there's the rare disease patient organizations. And like I mentioned earlier, I would, I would term it as lack of resources and lack of resources. Like we, like I had mentioned previously is really about money. It's about people and it's about expertise. But last but not least, it's about time. There is a lot to be learned. You're, you are um, responsible for so much as a patient advocate. You have to become disease experts. You have to become educators for clinicians. You have to start becoming business leaders, starting nonprofits. You have to, you know, um, start working with scientists. You have to become science literate. You, know, you have to understand the dynamics of drug development. I mean, there's so much. And so it's overwhelming and it's an extraordinary burden um, that we've put on patients' heads. So I would say um, those are some of the large challenges. There are amazing um, uh, organizational partners out there, a lot of biopharma um, there's organizations like Global Genes and others that have all come to the table to really help um, b- support through education and connections and all different types of programs to support patients in their growing role in rare disease drug development, medicines development. Th- that's a huge challenge. But what you and I have talked about often, um, and especially recently with rare is, you know, this the N of one patients, you know, as uh, whole genome sequencing is becoming more accessible um, and other genetic testing. You know, we mentioned the 9,500 number, you know, over the last decade, when we started a decade ago, we were talking about 7,000 rare diseases. So new diseases are being identified every day. And now what's having, happening even more often is that you become an N of one patient. You become that one patient um, that needs to do all of the things that we just described a patient org has to do. And there hasn't really been um, an, a way to support N-of-1 patients, and especially now because of the emerging science and research um, and technologies that are available um, in medicine's development to support N-of-1 patients, like all the gene therapies, et cetera. Um, we also have to create a way to support N-of-1 patients in that same type of Data collection and data sharing because it's going to be even more critical as these um, N of one opportunities come forward. So, um, you know, basically, Rarex is building out um, an approach and we're reimagining data collection, governance, data sharing, and the ability to silo break data across data sets, um, leveraging uh, new technologies that you know, really have weren't even available five years ago. Um, and so it's a pretty exciting time for us to come in and support, you know, patient advocates on their rare disease journey, um, leveraging new technology and new support so that they can be equipped to go out there and really, truly be drivers um, um, and not overburdened, but underburdened drivers of <laughs> um, Of of critical efforts um, in the disease communities that we care about.
0: Rarex quietly unveiled itself last year, but I suspect most of our listeners may not be familiar with it. For for people who haven't heard of Rarex, what is it? What's it seeking to do? Well, um,
1: first and foremost, it's seeking to tackle those three challenges that we talked about at the beginning of this. So um, we want to silo break data that exists in multiple sources, you know, around the globe um, that are are sitting in silos um, that we could be doing so much more with if we could um, provide a way for researchers to analyze um, these, these data sets that are, you know, in silos today, number one, but on the patient side, um, we are, like I mentioned, really working to, um, innovate, or like I had mentioned, reimagine what patient-owned data collection really is, what the needs are, and how can we support patients, um, in new ways to ensure that, um, the patients can share data at their discretion um, and bring forward data that's usable um, and that can help drive you know, disease understanding and future medicine development. So, so the first thing that we're doing is reimagining data collection um, and, and the support for patients and being drivers um, and responsible partners in this process. And then the second, really utilizing and leveraging existing technology, new technology um, that can support uh, what what is called federated data sharing, which is the technology that has come forward the last four years that can help do what we talked about earlier, which is silo break data and really allow us to build that ecosystem of discovery that we know needs to exist to really transform rare disease research. How did
0: RareX come about?
1: As uh, the founder of Global Genes um, over a decade ago, um, we have the good fortune of working with um, leaders in rare disease, in patient advocacy, and from industry on the research side, even from the technology side. And a lot of those individuals um, were very active and involved in Global Genes. And um, as advisors, as as board members, et cetera, and we sat down and decided to really talk through what do we need to to truly um, transform our disease. And we were coming at it rooted in patient advocacy, right? And uh, that's where we kind of identified those three challenges that we talked about and um, we had industry folks in the room saying we don't want to be in the data collection business or we know that patients can should be owners of their data we know that they should be able to share that data it should reside with them like all of those things everyone philosophically agreed around but there wasn't a a way to actually do that Um, and there wasn't an opportunity to support patients in contributing that type of data so that industry didn't have to take on that burden. So um, we we sat in this room and decided there is a huge opportunity. We were sitting with um, one of our board members um, Anthony Filipakis, who is the chief data officer at the Broad Institute, a, a longtime rare disease champion and supporter, and sat there and started talking about some of the technology that that existed and some of the work that was being done. You know, in the room we had Peter Goodhand, the executive director of Global Alliance for Genomics and Health, that had just spent a decade with hundreds of global organizations and research institutions looking at how can we do a better job sharing data across institutions um, so that we're keeping in mind IP, that we can create responsible and safe ways to share data. And so we had a lot of individuals in there that were all leading, uh, uh, you know, thought leaders in kind of that what's next, like what can we do to really transform and game change rare disease? And so that was the emergence of RareX and uh, it landed um, as, a, uh, as an initiative that we knew needed to be rooted in advocacy um, and it grew out of um, the, those discussions. And so here we are today as a uh, new nonprofit 501c3 Um, We are a patient-driven advocacy organization leveraging health tech. We're leveraging open source uh, technology that I'm sure we'll talk about that's um, originating out of the Broad, and because of the type of partnership and collaboration we have with them, we have the ability to also start looking across the health tech ecosystem to uh, leverage collaborations and partnerships with other vendors to really bring forward some extraordinary uh, platform technology, partnerships, and collaborations that can be transformative in support of patients and research uh, for rare disease.
0: I'm glad you mentioned Anthony and and Peter, because there is a fair bit of expertise and technology underlying RareX that might surprise people what's the platform underlying it
1: yeah it's actually multiple platforms and um so the broad the broad institute as many know um is a, a research institution with a mission to bring forward um extraordinary technology to transform human health globally they um have um, been rooted in genomics, large-scale pro- data projects. They've worked globally and here in the U.S. with the NIH with massive population health projects. They've done an extraordinary, extraordinary amount of work in cancer, and they've been building tech to support a lot of these types of, of data sharing and research efforts and initiatives. They work with other organizations like the um, Genomics England, and others around the globe. And when we were introduced to some of the different types of tech platforms and technology that they had, it was, um, it was an aha moment for us because not only did uh, the, for example, the Pepper platform for data collection that they were building, um, not only would that be uh, beneficial as a starting point for us for rare disease but there were other technologies like their TerraBio platform which is their federated data sharing platform like their duos technology that's actually a data use oversight system tech enabling data access and we looked at and then there's some other technology that we would be leveraging we're leveraging investment right now and we looked at this tech and we said wow what if we could now take the, all of these platforms, cobble them together and also retrofit it for what we know needs to happen in our disease. And that's been kind of our labor of love over the last year um, as we um, kind of leverage and launch from the extraordinary technology that's already been brought forward by the, the Broad. Um, and like we said, you know, kind of retrofit it, which we'll talk about what that is, to really truly support rare disease so we're the first big partner um, for the bro that's actually looking and leveraging um together kind of cobbling together a lot of the extraordinary technology that they have brought forward for other initiatives so it's it's a super cool partnership and one that we're really excited about
0: you talked about federated data a moment ago but I, i think it's a term many listeners may not be familiar with What's the significance of having a federated data platform? What does it mean to the owners of the data?
1: Yeah, so, um, and I'm going to say this as a layperson, but it's very cool. Uh, It's super dreamy. It's what we've been waiting for in rare disease. So I'm going to, I'm going to, I'll say it through some use cases. So, uh, um, all too often in rare disease, um, and it's sad because a lot of t- a lot of times there's uh, there's um, fractured efforts in rare disease. Let's just take a disease community in, in particular, and within that disease community, there's um, several different data collection efforts happening. There's fractured efforts between um, uh, you know patient communities that may all be standing up different registries. There's um, data that's uh being developed through different studies at academic research institutions that are owned by those um those academic researchers and that they are in those platform in particular it creates one front door for a researcher and what that means is there's a workspace that's created you come in to the environment and you say i'm interested in looking across uh these this these various data sets that exist within this particular disease community now i'm saying this assuming that everyone decided to play ball and we'll talk about in a minute but let's just say everyone said yes as a researcher i get to come into one place and i create a workspace and what the technology does is is it builds pointers out to the data we're not ingesting or bringing data into the platform so, basically, what that means is that the, the data never leaves where it resides. It can be sitting at an academic research institution. It can be sitting at a registry that a patient started or multiple registries. All you have to do is say, um, and this can happen through the system, that you're willing to um, share or open up either all of your data, certain types of data, et cetera, and you make that you you develop the criteria for um, that that open data sharing. And so, first and foremost, is that researcher now in the workspace gets to create snapshots of the data that that he's looking to um, analyze. The snapshots come into that um, workspace, and then that's where all the data analytics are done. And it's supported by all sorts of anal, uh, you know research analytics tools, etc. So. That's on the research side. You can look across it's silo-breaking data that's sitting at multiple locations um, and allows researchers to query across the data sets. So that's the first thing. Now let's go on the other side of it and talk about business models. Let's say the patient communities are like, we just want to help accelerate research. We don't really care. Like We will open this data up, which is usually the case for patients. But let's say one of the research institutions is like, you know what? Um, I, um I'm going to charge a fee for that data. Our, the data use oversight system that does technology actually will respect business models. So what happens off the platform is that, you know, whatever data sharing agreement needs to happen can happen off the platform. And then once that happens, you as the data owner can open up that data to the person that you've just granted access to. So the coolest thing is that federated data actually is a safe way to open up data and create the opportunities for data to be reused, leveraged. It's going to help accelerate repurposing of data for for other, for new studies. It is going to help save time. There's discussions around other uses for federated data sharing, like comparator studies. Um, It is, it will be transformative. It is transforming biomedical research as we know it today. I think the biggest roadblock and hurdle is the fear on the end of the data owners that they're going to be, um, that their uh, data will be abused, that they won't be able to, you know, it won't be able to support their business models, et cetera. And that's absolutely not the case. The other thing that I think is really important about federated data sharing and this whole approach is that it levels the playing field. What if, and I will, I always use this quote from our mutual friend, Brad Margus, from um, who leads AT Children's Project. And he said, I don't know where, the, the the this discovery will come for my disease that I care about. It could be some young um investigator or um, a young mathematician in Malaysia that might um, see patterns where no one else can. But he doesn't have the money or the infrastructure to do the analysis that he needs across data. Um, that could get allow him to, you know, work his magic. Well, when you think about this type of platform, it's basically open. And for those that do that want to open it and accelerate their research and are less concerned about selling data, this could actually be transformative in opening up new ideas and create that ecosystem of discovery, like we discussed. So that's kind of one example within a disease community. But let's just talk about across the board, there are collaborations that are coming into the queue that are looking across diseases, you know, let's take, you know, um, just some of the neurological diseases. Chris Austin says there's more in common in rare disease than there is that is unique. And um, this platform will allow, you're not going to have to go out and kind of recollect data Federated data sharing allows all of these disparate data sets, whether you're in the same disease community or not, to be opened up and queried. You'll be able to search for phenotypes um, or or, um, other types of uh, data that goes beyond the name of the disease. And what could happen is that as a researcher, you identify and find individuals that meet your criteria for studies that you would have never known existed because you didn't even know about the disease. So I think that there's just huge opportunities as we start thinking about opening up data, creating standard and structured data, which we didn't actually talk about, but that we can about our data collection, kind of what makes us unique, but you know, the the world is our oyster right now. And if we can transform, you know, I think the the biggest roadblock is going to be adoption, right? It's getting kind of old researchers, the old approach to researchers to really look forward and rethink how they can do more by sharing. Everyone benefits. It's going to just, I think, take some time. Um, We'll start seeing successes with those that are forward thinkers and early adopters, and it will be exciting, and then I think people will jump in. But it's always hard when you're kind of out there pioneering some new tech or something new.
0: There are a number of for-profit and non-profit organizations that work with patient groups to create registries and natural history studies. How does RareX differ from these organizations?
1: Yeah, I mean, and first, you know, I want to say uh, I think the most important thing is that patients find places to collect data. And I, I'm just going to go before I jump into what makes this unique. I want to go back to say um, most important thing is that you find a place that you feel comfortable collecting data with. And if you've spent time and money in the past in collecting data, um, that is fine you know technology like federated data sharing platforms like what we're bringing forward will allow even old like retrospective data that's been stood up or and that are on other platforms to be integrate or to to um interconnect with other um other data sets that might be coming forward so it's not all lost like i just want to Make sure that what's most important is participation um, and kind of the mindset for sharing and data, regardless of where it sits, um, can be shared and incorporated and and work together. So I just want to preface everything I say by that. Like we we don't want to be viewed as you know there's too much work to be done and you know I don't want to go in the weeds and get all competitive. But what we have done around data sharing is we are bringing forward a lot of new things. We, we, like I said earlier, we have reimagined data collection for patients um, with a platform approach and mindset to this. And so one of the biggest pillars um, that has taken a lot more time um, than what we, we thought is around developing the right governance because this is new. Um, we are looking forward so that you know, 50 years from now, we won't be stuck in silos um, or have made decisions that would put any barriers to sharing um, with data that's collected within the RAREx portal. So we've spent a lot of time with some governance experts um, that are bringing forward, uh, we're bringing forward an umbrella IRB which means patients don't have to become governance experts. They don't have to come in and go spend the money and the time and all the legal, everything that that needs to happen when you're building out, you know, a properly governed um, uh, data collection effort. So we've taken on that burden and we are providing it just as part of the platform, right? Patients should not have to become governance experts. We've also put that same intention into consent. And we built out a very flexible and robust consent. It's been written simply um, because we believe that um, if we are trying to encourage informed patients um, as participants and they don't read the consent because it's too legal easy and it's, you know, um, it's it's not understandable, then we failed. So we've spent a lot of time, a lot of time simplifying, creating a very simplified consent um, that will make it easy for patients to understand what they're getting into. I will mention the other extraordinary individual, John Wilbanks, who has from Sage Bio Networks, who's been hammering us since the beginning about ensuring that we put we make consent um, accessible and usable um, and understandable. We've also worked with um, a data governance um, expert. Uh, Joy Pritz, who was involved in the very early days with everything revolving HIPAA and has just been an extraordinary part of our team building out this consent. And last is Devin McGraw, formerly uh, working on all the data governance and sharing for all of us with NIH and now sits at an extraordinary organization called Citizen, all who have participated in building out this governance. So net-net is A, patients get to come in and benefit from all of this It just becomes part of the process the second thing and this is really all of this is leading towards the ability to scale this platform to support n of one patients through disease communities globally is this notion of structured data by domain we have spent a lot of time building out this model and what we believe, and this is what Chris Austin, we've talked about this earlier, says all of the time, 80% of the data or 80% of all of these d- diseases likely need to be, be collecting the same type of data, the same type of questions. If you're a neuro and have seizures, the say, whether it's a primary phenotype of the disease or or secondary or whatever, you're going to need to be asked the same questions, same with um, you know, all of the different domains, eye, ear, lung, kidney, et cetera. We're building out domains with the best questions, utilizing a team of people that are evaluating and, and analyzing a lot of the different data dictionaries that are out there at NIH. We have biostatisticians, data modelers, survey methodologists, clinical, uh, um, academic, clinic, uh, clinic, clinical clinical, Research expertise, other KOLs, patient groups, all, all expert evaluating questions. And then we will be bringing forward what those best survey questions within this domain should be. Um, and we will also be publishing those because what's most important is that the world starts trying to adopt Um. Similar structured data, so downstream, all of this data can be harmonized. But back to what makes us different: our laser, our extraordinary focus on um, governance, data governance, and data sharing, um, and then how we're building out this platform, this to be scaled using data domain modules that will allow patients to easily come in. It will be as easy as drop-down menus. Right to bring forward the right data that's that's um, important for research, that's structured properly, that's governed properly, um, and is easy for patients to understand and come in at any time. You might, um, as the as diseases progress, we know that new phenotypes um, come or in. Uh, You know, become become (laughs) Um, and uh, you wouldn't know to ask, you know, your daughter now has catatonia. Um, You never knew that that was that was going to um, be part or something that she was going to be impacted by because there wasn't data about about that with your disease. Well, now you have a way to just come in right away. And look at the the right questions in that domain that you can start answering, um, and then you they now you have um, ready research ready data available in that domain. So it's a different approach. It's certainly um, uh, you know not easy, but if it was easy, then it would have already been done. And um, you know I, I just think that that it, it's going to allow us to be able to support the rare disease disease ecosystem globally, it will also allow us to support N of one patients. And that's huge because we're already starting to partner with N of one organizations and companies and researchers. So we'll be able to support um, that. Last but not least, I'll just say is patient ownership. So, you know, even you may be a disease community that's leading an effort with patients in your community that are participating, but those patients actually are signing their own consent and their own data sharing agreement. Right, because one day they might say we don't want to share it with anyone, but then maybe there is promising research, and they like the researcher, and they can go back in there and change their data sharing um, survey so that now they can make their data available. So we want to provide flexibility and can um, and and ways for patients um, that can come in and, and make this um, uh, you know not kind of a one-time, one uh, time one one time thing. The other, the last thing I will say. I'm sorry, I'm such a rambler, but. If you think about that 80-20 rule, like 80% of all of this data is really the same. One of the things um, that patient advocates have come forward and talked a lot about is, is sheer ex- exhaustion. Like when you're fortunate enough to have a lot of activity um, for your disease with all these different researchers or biopharma you know, efforts, you are getting hit time and time again to answer the same 500 questions um, or the majority of them. And by the end, um, you don't want to participate anymore. And so this kind of 80-20 approach, what we believe is that if 80% of the data, this very robust data, can be made available at will by the patient. Sure, if someone comes in and they want to, they want to get access to all this data, they'll knock on my door. Um, you know, if, they're, if they meet the criteria that I set for, it, we'll open up that data. That creates, a, a, that's de-burdening this process for patients. Now, when research institution, biopharma partner has survey questions outside of the, you know, all of this robust data that's already been made available, it might be 20 additional questions, right? Well, that becomes easier for patients to participate then because they've been able to open up all that other data. So what we believe is this platform is going to help really truly accelerate the ability. It's going to accelerate drug development because it's going to provide uh, it's going to deburden patients and uh, and create better participation, not with clinical trials, with other studies, um, and kind of create that, like we said, support that ecosystem of discovery that's going to drive forward medicines develop, development much more quickly. So we just think everything that when we talk about automation and systematization. Um, and ease of use for patients, like that, that brings joy to them because they're like, we don't, we want there to be activity, but they, there's so few of them that they are extraordinarily burdened. And so we're really hoping to alleviate that with this approach.
0: Rarex doesn't charge patients for the work you do with them. How is Rarex supported?
1: Currently, as a new not-for-profit, it's everything that you would expect. Like most traditional nonprofit organizations, we are currently reliant on corporate grants. We're reliant on sponsorship and program support. We are reliant on philanthropy, but um, we are working towards um, uh, uh, you know, more government grants, etc. Um, and uh, like you said, Danny, I mean, we're trying to put that burden on us versus patients, because patients are already extraordinarily burdened. And one of the things that we always say, one of my, um, one of our teammates that we're at, she's like, we spent over $500,000 developing over the last decade, our data collection. And what we realize now is not only is the data not really usable, like we asked the wrong questions, we also asked too many questions. And now because patients have been hit up time and time again, they, they aren't participating. So when we think about RareX, we think about like, wow, what if RareX existed when this person began their journey, right? What would that $500,000 that they had to raise through bake sales, through all sorts of other fund, funding drives, where could that have gone if we could have, we as the ecosystem could have supported those efforts? Maybe there would be some research actually moving forward for this particular disease, because after all of that, there still isn't. So we just think it's time for change. Um, At the very beginning, Danny, you asked me like, why why is data siloed? And we talked about kind of the old way of doing business, right? I mean, that it's just, it's time. Like there's technology and there's the willingness of patients and the desire by a lot of forward thinkers to create change Um, that will help accelerate this whole process because it's wonky, it's out of date. And so we are doing our best to try to tackle and and be part of the change, be part of the what's next.
0: What do you think it'll take to make data sharing a reality?
1: Mark my words, in 2022, we will have some extraordinary collaborations. Um, This federated data sharing backbone um, platform that we talked about will hopefully be supporting some Uh, uh, data sharing consortiums that are starting to pop up. I think if we come forward and show some extraordinary outcomes from this, I guarantee you it's just going to, we won't even be questioning this anymore. So I guess what I would say is that there's going to be a lot happening over the next uh, 12 to 24 months. And I think after that, we'll all be looking in the rearview mirror because there will be proof that those that embrace this this kind of concept and model—it's happening around the globe. Um, you know that we will really, truly streamline, save money, save time, deburden patients. It's a win-win for everyone. So we just have to kind of, you know, show show proof of concept that that's really the case. And I and I expect that we will have that um,
0: uh, by early next year. Rarex is at rare-x.org. Nicole Boyce, co-founder and executive director of RareX. Nicole, thanks so much for your time today.
1: Thank you, Danny.
0: Thanks for listening. For more information about rare disease and to connect to the rare disease community, go to globalgenes.org. To keep up on the latest news and trends affecting the rare disease community, be sure to visit raredaily.org.